Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 93, and I'm very excited to welcome to the show Scott Erickson. You may know him from Instagram or elsewhere as Scott the Painter. And he is this really talented visual artist and storyteller who manages to pack incredibly beautiful and moving theology into art in a way that I, yeah, it's quite unique. And uh, so I was really excited to get to connect with Scott. He's got a book out called Honest Advent, and it is just a beautiful kind of coffee table Christmas piece. So I'll get out of the way here and we'll dive right into this conversation with Scott Erickson on the podcast, episode 93. I have read six chapters, I think, so far of Honest Advent, and I have laughed out loud. I have cried real tears. I have uh, sat kind of holding my theological guts, trying to keep them from spilling out on the floor. Uh, I love it, man. It's so good. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. Perfect. I feel like we are on the same wavelength, Uh but... I've been listening to 80s metal and you're introducing 80s synthesizers (laughs) and it's all good. Okay, great. (laughs) They they can love each other. They can find a home together. Yeah. Exactly. That's great. Uh, So, okay. Honest Advent. Why honest? Start right there. Well, showing my cards, that actually was um, my publisher. My editor pitched it. I had other ones like my original idea, like my original like made up title was like with us, which is that's already taken. So she's like, that's God with us is taken and with us. And so, yeah, she's like, how about honest Advent? And and the Enneagram four in me who uh, seeks to have authenticity as the highest thing was like, uh, yeah, I like that. And then as as we got into it, because at that time I had written um, all the chapters, but I hadn't written the introduction or the afterward. And so I was thinking of where all this came from and stuff. And, and what became apparent was going, well, what I'm trying to get to is an honest hope, a hope that has a robust, a robustness in, in the midst of chaos and absurdity, like a hope that makes sense, a hope, a hope, a hope that's really honest. And so if I'm going to have an honest hope, I need to start with an honest advent, you know? And so that, that when I made those connections, I was like, that makes sense. So the honest advent is really, and, and, and I think also, as you can, as you, as you've read, like it's trying to ask real questions or honest questions. Um, I mean, I, you know, when we're, we're discussing these ancient stories or texts, um, you know, if you've dedicated yourself to life, you know, there's a part of you that's like, you know, how true is this? <laughs> like, is this true? You know, and, and that's and that's an okay question. If that's really, really threatening to you, then watch out because that's there's lots in the Bible that'll be threatening. But like, I think what what one of the muses for me as a teacher is the only the, I say this is like the only reason we talk about these stories still is because then they didn't just happen back then they're happening right now. And, mm. and so what, um, what I was trying to see was the connection of like, you know, what could I see in these sacred texts that I've seen also in like my own honest life and, and in my own honest experience. And, and I found those parallels, you know, the, the, <laughs> I'm not saying the Bible's written poorly, but you know, it's, it's, it's not, written by like Anne Lamont or <laughs> like Michael Crichton or, you know, like there's, there's not a lot of like giving the emotion and context and stuff. I mean, it's written for a specific reason and for certain audiences. And um, so there is some embellishment, but I think you can kind of see within the text, like if human beings find themselves in these situations, there's probably some instance of this or that or that, you know, and, and that's how I started finding this, like, honesty or this like realness um that i was like paralleling this ancient story was also paralleling the story we find ourselves in now yeah Mm. yeah that's so good my brain is going in like 101 different directions uh from a bunch of stuff you just said i'm thinking like about honesty 
if if for a moment we hold honesty up as a juxtaposition to truth, I'm not saying that these are opposing forces, but that culturally, I think like uh, we're in we're in this time where people are very very hungry for authenticity, for honesty, for a something that's for hope that's like 2020 proof, you know, yeah. like hope that can survive the madness of this time. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us who've been raised in church have have been just kind of, well, this is what truth is. And so yeah. what further conversation do we need to have? Yeah. And then furthermore, depending somewhat on which kind of tradition you're a part of, truth has been defined as like historical accuracy. Like that's all we need to discuss. Was Jesus born in a literal stable? Did God create the world in a literal seven-day, 24-hour? Like, that's what truth means. Yeah. Uh, And in the midst of that, or in response to that, I I don't know, it seems like people like yourself, artists and and creative people, and and writers, of course, too, but I feel like yourself, Morgan Harper Nichols, and, and various other people are bringing into this milieu an honesty a robustness mm. allowing us to reframe you know we're looking at these same truths we're looking at scripture we're looking at these ancient stories yeah but it's like we need to be jolted in some way to see that they're still hope filled when yeah. when they've somehow lost the shine yeah does that make yeah. any sense? I know I've just said a lot I, I of things. Like, I like that. I like that. Compa- like truth and honesty, because they are different functions. And with like truth, it could be historical truth. I also uh, found myself growing up in a culture where truth meant our way of understanding this is what's correct. Mm. Um, and so then it became like kind of a way to go. Well, you believe in truth, right? And which is you believe in like our perspective, and then it became this kind of. Um, you know, like, oh my, the youth today, they don't believe in absolute truth, you know, which is funny that that same generation drinks the Kool-Aid of like, uh, political propaganda without fact checking, which is really amazing to me. I've been thinking about that lately. It's amazing. Like like my parents and the adults I knew, they're just like sending me the stuff. And I'm like, did you fact check any of this? Like, these are inflammatory things but you know they were like but it's the tr- you know we're all about the truth it's just a funny thing uh yeah and i and i would say uh so we we could talk more about like truth and i mean you can get into historical accuracy and all that but i think what's interesting about honesty is that that can feel rare in religious uh communities uh, like it and maybe it's just because of me but like i find myself often teaching at a church and people will be like, that was really honest. <laughs> and I was like, well, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Like, I, you, no- you sense it's a compliment, but also not <laughs> it's a compliment, but like, we haven't seen that for a while, you know? And I think what they're saying is like, you made this, you made this very applicable to my real experience. And, and I think that's where, uh, I've been exhausted or just worn out on, kind of the way of talking about all of this. Um, I, I feel very much an oddball. Like I'm I, uh, in at least Western church. I, like I'm not trying to make a go at it. You know, like I, people sometimes will be like, what, Scott, what have you seen going on in churches around the nation? And I'm like, I know like five churches <laughs> that I go to consistently. And that's about it. <laughs> like, I don't know, like, I'm not going into any like leader conferences or I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. Um, but I, I, what happens though, is I, I am aware of kind of the things that are coming out of this culture. And when I read or listen, I'm just like, I don't even understand what you're talking about. Like, it just like the God way you're talking about God doesn't make sense to me or, or, or faith or I have, you know, you're making these blanket statements. I have these real questions about how do you find yourself and like, what about this and that and this? And I think it's that kind of, uh, willingness to go into those more complicated questions that that's where it gets, you know, ding, dinged as honest, you know, mm-hmm. it's like not taking, not taking these like blanket, uh, assumptions and be like, yeah, it must be true. But going, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And, and that's really because I'm like, I want to, I, I guess my faith is saying like, God is 
uh, God is dynamic enough to be in this. So we, ha- but we have to keep going farther into our assumptions or cliches and and keep, you know, the more we learn about reality, the more we are, our ideas of God have to expand and grow. So, yeah. Yes. That's so good. A couple of weeks ago, I had, I don't know if you know, Pete Grieg, he's one of the founders of the 24 seven prayer movement. Uh-huh. I had him on, on the show and we were talking about the silence of God, that the new book he's got out called God on Mute. And he had made the observation regarding Easter that God allows the entire world to sit in Holy Saturday for 24 hours. Like, meanwhile, we don't want to let people sit in uncomfortable silence for like 30 seconds. Like, that would be like, <laughs> yeah, let's quickly solve that problem. And and so I, I feel like there's a, there's a connection there where it's like, as we're engaging God in the real world, as you just said, in our lived reality, in warts and all, mm. something about these liturgical calendar events, Easter, Advent, it, it puts us into the here and now. Like, I don't know. It calls us to reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess we're interested to know, did you write this material specifically all for this project or did you pull together stuff that you had elsewhere or did you have in your gut like i need to write something for advent like how did that birth well the genesis of this was four years ago in a very similar time that we find ourselves now at least in the united states we were just it was right after an exhaustive and divisive election cycle um syria civil war was devastating, displacing to thousands of people. Uh, when we were seeing awful images from that, there was Zika, Flint water crisis. We had multiple mass shootings in the United States. It, and I like what happens in November is without you knowing one day you'll go to the stores and they've just been blanketed with like Christmas decorations. (laughs) You're like, Oh wow. And, uh, it comes out of nowhere, you know, it's coming, but then just one day it's there. And, I think I was walking into like a target or something and I, and I was like, Oh yeah. And it, I just had this, Oh, I just was like, man, all of this feels so irrelevant to like the world I find myself in. Like I just, none of this makes sense. And and none of this seems very hopeful or like offering something helpful to what's really going on. And, and not, and not even just like the Santa stuff, you know, although there's, like if you go on Netflix, you're like, I think there's too many Santa movies now. Like in how technologically advanced is the North Pole? Like we should tap some of those resources to help us with some things. But like, you know, I, what I, mean? I like love the- how every film takes a different approach to like yeah. the logistics of Santa. I know. That's it. The logistics of Santa. How did, how are they doing it? Um, but even like the imagery in my own faith tradition just seemed very sanitized and safe and 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 depicting depicting non-human realities like it was depicting scenes that was like it doesn't that doesn't feel human if it feels like caricatures or something somebody else's experience and so uh yeah i've i in the book i say i'm not a woman but i live with one and i've witnessed three pregnancies and births close up and and i was like birth is very uh risky and it's painful and it's wonderful and transformational um it, co- it costs a lot and uh, it there's a lot of fluids <laughs> and uh, so many fluids, so many fluids. And and it just I get where I was like, where do I find Jesus in my midst? Is it is 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 Christmas a one time thing or is it like is it a memorial service or is it a birthday party? A memorial service is like that happened long ago. A birthday party means it's continuing that the birthday boy is still around. And so, and I was like, how do I find you, Jesus? Meditating on the incarnation story, meditating through this season. And, and what dawned on me was like, everyone incarnates through human vulnerability, like Mm -hmm. human weakness. So God incarnated through human vulnerability. So where we can begin to connect with God uh, with us now is still through the avenue of human vulnerability. So a lot of the book is like taking the perspective of vulnerability as the doorway to see this thing instead of like, instead of maybe like the Christ is victorious or God win, you know, all these, this all there's, you know, there's a lot of like victorious or winning or overcoming language, which is true. But, but I think what's, I think when like 
Paul in writing to the Philippians says like he, you know, he humbled himself and took on flesh. Like it's this like, it's like this willful vulnerability, this willfulness to be willingness to be weak and, and participate in weakness, vulnerability and, and, and participate and like go through like, and, and a, a lot of the, a few of the chapters are talking about like, Christ is king because Christ was willing to go through. Like we give names to people who are like veterans of, survivor of, um, you know, people who went through like something and and they went through it and now they've given this like title. Mm-hmm. Like um, like that's at the end. That's actually the afterword of the book is like Christ is Lord and that's nothing I need to convince you of because like it's just – like what what that passage is saying is well at least my musing is is like look I just wrote a book about Jesus but I don't like somebody telling me what I'm going to do and like if Paul says everybody's going to bow and kneel at the name of Jesus you're like you can't tell me what to do Paul you're not the boss of me you don't know if I'll bow, I'll bow down I'll kneel down and uh, but if there is this like witnessing of a true and honest experience it's not about like. Do you, it's not about a cognitive decision. Like, do you think Christ is Lord? It's about observing something that was honest and going, yeah, I see what that, I see how that happened. I see, I see it and, and, and giving respect to it. Um, and, and, and that's more of like, I think my musing was like, I wanted to like see how God was participating, see how God was going through, see how God was not bypassing the human experience, which is what we find ourselves in, which we're, which we have weaknesses and vulnerabilities ourselves. And um, mm. I actually did this interview for the website Bible Gateway, but they asked me, what's my favorite Bible verse, which is a funny question. And I, I said, you know what? Like my favorite Bible verse is the shortest verse of the Bible, which is Jesus wept. Uh, Jesus wept. And I was like, because like I'm a Christian because of the resurrection, but I'm a Christian because of that verse, mm. because uh, if the story of God incarnating on the in the world uh, didn't involve him crying at his friend's funeral, like I have, and maybe you have, and all of us have. I wouldn't believe it because I would just say he, he was insulated from the thing, and uh, it's that like that's what's in that's what's endlessly interesting to me is uh, the participation. Yeah. 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 Wow. Beautiful. I have spent probably, I guess, about the last year and a half kind of meditating on on this thing of the participation, the incarnation. So much of the tradition that I was raised in majors on the cross. So it's all yeah. about specifically the cross. And one of the things that I love about, say, uh, the Orthodox tradition is for them, events begin much earlier. It's really like... Jesus coming as a human, God coming in human flesh, it all it's already hitting reset on everything that we believe about humanity. Because if yeah. if humanity's filthy and wretched, how how can God become yeah. human? Yeah. And so I've been chewing over that. And I think I, I probably stumbled on one of your posts regarding just specifically, I think it was the language of like God in amniotic fluid. God being nurtured mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. a placenta. Yeah. Like it it boggles mm-hmm. my mind mm-hmm. that level of fragility that God's mm-hmm. creation nourishes God. Yeah. I, I I don't know I don't know if I'll stop meditating on that. No. Well <laughs> yeah. I know. That's where the because it, it's not a mystery. I mean, it's it's a mystery to, I guess, understand, but it's a mystery to enter into. You know, it's a mystery, like, uh, you know, probably our mutual homeboy, Richard Rohr, he says, you know, mystery is not something to be, uh, mystery is not n- not being able to know something. Mystery is, like, means it's, I'm butchering the quote. Yes, I have small children. I can't talk today. Uh, 
uh, mystery is not unknowable. Mystery is endlessly knowable, right? Yes. So, like, I think this mystery can keep it can keep we can keep going into it and keep letting it transform us. Yeah, like, man, the you know there are what I think like deconstruction is or where we get to spots is like what we understand in our faith practice stops working for us because we've got new information and we're like, well, <laughs> I just know I, now I know this. I can't really like keep believing the same thing, but. One of the things in the last few years that uh, one of my teachers in my spiritual direction training, it, it was, there's this whole other line of theology or, or thinking about Christ, which is uh, was part of Christ's vulnerability and weakness was not knowing, mm-hmm. like not knowing who he was, uh, but being told by the spirit who he was. So like, because I think, I think that there's, like I've, I've rarely heard a sermon on this. And then when I did through one of my teachers, I was like, what? That makes more sense for the whole thing. Like, why would Jesus be, cause my, one of my teachers was like, why would Jesus be crying in the, the garden? Not because of, I mean, maybe because of torture and that's awful, but he was like, because he didn't know if there was anything after death. Like he believed there was. He believed in the resurrection, but he didn't know. For sure. Like like we don't know. Um, and like we have to believe. And then seeing Jesus walking through, like then Jesus becomes the model of what it means to walk through and listen and to the spirit and all that stuff. Anyways, that it's the, but that was the start of really like beginning to understand being beset with weakness or being beset with vulnerability. Which is our human experience. Like, I think that's the weird thing that maybe religion does a weird, I don't know, at least it did for me was to go like, it's hard to, you can, we can see each other because we're on video, but like, uh, I don't have, I don't have, <laughs> it's kind of like we're tangenting, but we'll come back. But like, uh, I, I don't have this. I don't know how to say this concisely because I still haven't found like a really great definition, but like, I always was taught like, that the fall in the garden, even that wording, the fall, that wording's not in there. That's just a subtitle and a theological like idea. But it says like our eyes were open. But I think what by saying fall does is that we give this height dynamic. So we were up high, which is like perfect. And then we fell from perfection. And now we're down here. And then apparently, like, and then if we had the timeline all the way to the end that we get like lifted up back to the perfection or restored to the perfection. So my only problem with that kind of visual diagram is that means like our whole humanity from birth to life, we're comparing ourselves to something that we'll never know Mm. or something that we're just like assuming what it's supposed to be like. So therefore, because we're juxtaposing ourselves against this assumed perfection it just in an, it embeds in us a constant disappointment or i am a disappointment or i'm not what i'm supposed to be and i i think what's evolved for me is going like what do you like actually maybe this is it maybe this like if god wanted this to be different it it would be and i know that can get tricky but like like my human experience isn't like God going, I wish you could get back to being perfect. The thing my human experience is like, look how I'm alongside you. Let's co-create together in this life. And that's a very different, like, so then there's this less constant, like comparison of like, I'm supposed to be this idea that I'll, that nobody's ever accomplished. Does that make sense? Does oh, it, absolutely. Are you getting what I'm saying here? Oh, for sure. I just, I just saw that there was this embedded idealism that's not accomplishable or not even real. It's all fabricated. And that for me just, and I was like, I'm either, all of this is going to die and I'm going to get throw it all away. Or I need to go, that ideal is a false myth. And the text is maybe alluding to something different. And that's where like the fall was like, I got to get rid of the fall. It says our eyes were open. And then the first thing we say to God, or the first question God asks is like, why are you hiding? So it's really about this like, now we believe shame is something that prevent that's something we need to hide from God. Like it's more of like guilt and shame. And there's a, a Catholic priest named Anthony DeMello, and he says, be grateful for your sins because they're doorways to God's grace. And uh <laughs> which can be scandalous to some people. But like I think what he's alluding to, he's like, 
our feelings of shame and guilt, we believe are walls to God and when in fact they are actual doorways to God. Yes. Like we go, I feel this way. I feel ashamed. There's a block now. Yeah. And what I, what has been transforming me partly because of this book and then some other stuff is to go, actually that feeling is your connectedness to God. That like that not having it together is how you're, you're, doing it right. Mm. <laughs> like it's, it's Jesus saying like heaven celebrates one sinner going, I don't, I'm not doing it correctly. Like I, I don't got it versus a hundred who are like, I'm fine. Mm. I don't need anything. Right. It, it is in the vulnerability that we are connected to the to divine. Wow. That's a different place to stand from than like, did you accomplish all the things to earn love? Like reading your Bible and praying and being kind. You know what I'm saying? Totally. That's that's like this, like I'm earning love. But if I could, if I could let my inadequacies or like my vulnerabilities be the starting place for connectedness with God, then I'm open to transformation. Then I'm open to healing. Yes. Then I'm open to like grace to permeate my life and uh and then let that let love be the catalyst for change instead of accomplishment being the catalyst for earning love then yes. for change you know what i'm saying yes oh man that's so good okay so i'm gonna i'm verbally trying to process some of the things i've just heard you say because that is so <laughs> I beautiful just took, like years of my life and summed it up so thank yeah you. I get it. thank you isn't that wonderful it's like here you're on a podcast please prove your worth by making statements about how you don't have to prove your worth uh, uh. <laughs> So there's like, I think, I think especially in the West, we have such a moralistic faith, right? Where we're really, it's like, if we don't do the things right, God won't have anything to do with us. Yeah. And that's kind of what we've been raised implicitly or explicitly taught. And, and yet there's something about God with us that blows apart this moralism Right. That's like, no, actually, I'm right here. No, actually, I'm hanging out. Yeah. You know, there's, there's still the the synagogue rulers in our lives saying, well, how how dare you associate with those people? How dare you associate with those behaviors? Uh, I just heard I just heard Father John Bear this week say, if Jesus is coming to save sinners, I'd better darn well hope I'm a sinner. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I better get started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, that's that's great. But but something in there, right? That 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 if you if God is allergic to weakness, brokenness, failure, mm -hmm. then then we can't be vulnerable with him, right? We yeah. have to put up a facade. We have yeah. to try and earn our our place. Yeah. But if it so happens that God is not that way, that Certainly God cares about the morals we choose to live with, but that it, that, but that, that doesn't change the way God behaves towards us. Mm -hmm. That God's presence is not withheld, as you keep saying in this book. Yeah, presence not withheld. Mm -hmm. Then, yeah, we can be vulnerable. We can be naked, as it were. Yeah, 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 I think so. I mean, it, that's what makes, I don't, I don't know how to keep it going if it has to be up to me, you know, like if it's, if it's just about willpower, it's not going to work out. <laughs> so yeah. And, uh, like, you know, okay. So my friend Justin McRoberts and I, uh, did a couple prayer books together and our premise in the prayer books was just like, you know, prayer is not getting God's attention. That's, that's, that's voodoo. Prayer is awakening to the voice and work of God already in your life. That's a different starting point than a lot of people. Some people are like, we got to go evangelize, which means we got to go tell people our perspective on things versus we're going to go in there and find where God's already at in everybody's life. That's a different way of approaching a situation. <laughs> so, and if that is true, then we go, well, then God's involved in everybody's life in some way. And how do I become an observer? Or how do I have eyes to see and witness that? Yes. And then how do I join alongside what God would be doing in somebody? And that takes a lot more care than just like <laughs> signs and bullhorns on street corners. You know what I'm saying? That means like being embedded in the lives and care about people and ask and questions and stuff like that. And really seeing them, really seeing them. I think what 
And, and I think that's what, like, you know, when we see the story of like this woman who comes to Simon the Pharisee's house because Jesus is eating there and she comes in and washes his feet and everybody's like, oh, if you knew what kind of lady this was, you know, and he, uh, which doesn't mean that she's like a hooker. It just means like she could be somebody who doesn't partake in um, ceremonial cleansing or goes, she doesn't go to the temple and stuff like that. And then Jesus does a couple scandalous things. First one, he goes, Simon, do you see this woman? Which is uh, like the statement. Do you see her? Because he does. But he's like, do you see her? Because you see a certain thing about her. But do you see this woman? And then he, and then at the end, he goes, your sins are forgiven. Which was, that was the big scandal of the whole thing. Because all those people are there like, no, wait. She's got to go get an animal and go down to the temple and slit its throat and pill, spill the blood. Somebody's got to go blah, 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 blah. Like, blah, 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 blah. And then it'll be all be, you know what I'm saying? There was like this whole industry of how to forgive sins and Jesus bypassing that and going, actually your movement of compassion is what cleanses you. Mm. <laughs> that is counteracting the whole thing. That's right? wild. It's wild. And how intimate and it's like, he didn't go and go, Hey, clean yourself up and go like read this book and every day for a year, you know, and like it was just it's like, he saw that her heart, very and if you get into it that woman was who in society had not a lot of power and not a lot of uh uh i actually did a sermon on this because i and i i actually got people out of the audience i I got volunteers because i was like you have to see you have to see like we're just in in our head but let's act this out and uh i think what that passage is so amazing is that the the woman okay so she washes his feet um, she brought perfume because her assumption was that Jesus's feet would have already been washed hmm. by be- She would not bring perfume and dump it on dirty feet. Mm, good point. Yeah. Wow. Jesus, like it was normal for a guest. He, she was like, he's a guest at this fair. They'll have already washed his feet. How brave for a woman to enter into like, religious leaders house like kind of break in and just like i'm gonna do this thing really quick and like so if you imagine she's like there with this big thing of nard or perfume and then she comes in she's like there's jesus i'm just like i'm gonna do this like how scary and then she's like his feet aren't washed i'll ruin all of this by putting it on dirt right and then she's like i don't have anything to wash his feet all i have is my body Oof, man and but I can't you got you don't know what I've done with my body. I can't walk. I that's not good enough to walk. And then immediately that's where tears come from. I don't have anything to give you except my body. But I will take this thing to wash your feet so then I can give. Do you see what's happening there? Dude, my tears are coming right now. <laughs> Mine too. Like when you see you're like, holy. Oh, Wow. And I like that passage is like, it's like, what, what do I have to give to Jesus except this life in this body that I've been falling down some stairs my whole life, you know, like just I've fallen down some stairs into this moment and just go, I don't have anything to offer you except this. And this is all I can do. This is all I can give you. Mm. And he's like, I see you. I see you. Wow. And that offering is accepted and it's forgiven and all of that. Does that, oh. you, know, it, you didn't need to go to the temple. I, I see it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. That is so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and thinking about even the corollary then of Jesus offering his body mm-hmm. for us, of Jesus of of all the the bride and bridegroom language of yeah. Jesus washing, you know, the, uh, what does it Paul say about husbands care for your wives as Christ cared for the church? You know, washing her with his, just all those different symbologies, offering even being born again, you know, which brings us back to birth. Mm-hmm. I was just chewing over that thing with Nicodemus where you know he says you must be born again and. I, Again, Father John Bear saying Jesus is the first human that chose to be born. Did you choose to be born? 
No. Yeah. Not one yeah. of us chose to be born. Jesus chooses to be born knowing full well it's heading to death. So for you and I, the invitation is to choose death, mm-hmm. be born again, choose to be born, and thus enter into life. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, it's, it is like it because Nicodemus is like, well, how could I climb back up in my mom's uterus? <laughs> you know, like totally. it's a funny part of the Bible. It's a good. It's a good joke. You know, like uh, how has that happened? And Jesus is like, it, yeah, it's not that. I'm using a metaphor, but yeah, it is this like. But something in you needs to like start over or start anew. Yeah. And, and, so the, and the spirit part of you. And like, yeah, you yeah. weren't in charge of your like coming into the world, but you can right. decide like, I want this, the real part of me, the part of me that's woven into this material part. I want that to be renewed. I want that to, that to be born. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Even the. My mind is honestly going everywhere. I'm going to have to end this interview and just go and sit and just like contemplate the <laughs> mysteries, man. Thinking about birth, we touched on fluids before. It's almost like in, like birth is this baptism of blood mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. everything else. Mm-hmm. And there's this embracing of death and life all at once. Uh, the, the risk of death uh, that's associated with birth. Even as a parent, you know, there's this way, there's this way where your, your life is now over, right? Like you move out to the frame now. You are yeah. no longer the subject matter. Yeah. You're the, what is, what is the line from Interstellar uh, where the parents are like the ghosts of your children's future or something like that? It's kind of like, oh, we're, yeah. we're, we're just, uh-huh. the, we're just like the framework of the story yeah. that you're, that you come to live within. Oh man. I think one of the things that really hits me with your work, Scott, is that you can write something and it's great. You're a great teacher. Mm-hmm. And then and then I look at a picture that you've painted or some art that you've produced. And there's like 171 things happening in it all at <laughs> yeah. once. And I look yeah. at it and I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. Oh, wow, that's cool. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then I'm just kind of rocked. <laughs> well, that's great. How, how does that happen that like, <laughs> how do you do that what's the magic trick because i feel like you've just done this verbally for me where you've pulled uh-huh. a whole bunch of things together how does that uh-huh. play out like in your in your creative process yeah i mean for years i've been kind of working on a symbology so figuring out like my symbols for different meanings or things and then i guess there's a whole like aesthetics that are been have been being developed but um We'll take a quick break to thank my Patreon supporters. Huge thank you to Heidi, who's my latest supporter. Heidi, so glad to have you with us. So thankful that you uh, have been reading You Are Enough and have been touched by it. Friends, if you would like to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle. You can become a patron for as little as $3 a month, but you can give more if you'd like, and you'll get access to me behind the scenes. I send handwritten thank you cards out to folks, and once a year I give out a free book. So uh, there's some bonuses there if you'd like, and you'll be a proud supporter of the podcast, helping keep this show on the air and keeping me doing all the work that I do. So thankful to everyone who's supporting me right now. You guys are my favorite. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Back to the show. I I let things like I bake in me for a while. I feel like I'm just like a crock pot and I just throw like, that's interesting. That's it. And then it just sits in there and then things come out at different times. Like I have like, you know, well, I have endlessly, I have tons of ideas, but so you have to prioritize, but you know, like I have like five books that kind of in the works where I'm like, this, I just, it's collecting. You just kind of create, actually I just use Evernote as an app and I just have these bins and it's like, that's for that, that's for that. And then, you know, after a while that bin gets big enough, you're like, there's something here. And, um, but I, yeah. So, but with images, there's this, um, what I like is trying to get um, – there's something to like ornateness and complexity that's great. I'm more drawn to like the, the like design is to try to have the simplest thing mean the most, which is like the cross – the cross is a 
kind of a fantastic co-opted design. I mean, it was used for thousands of years by empires to tell people you don't win. And then, and in fact, it, the early Christians didn't touch it for like 300 years. It was, it was really when Constantine kind of did it, but also there was this narrative going like, we're going to take this symbol of death and we're going to turn it into our symbol of hope. It's a it's pretty punk rock, really, if you think about <laughs> it, to take a like to take an oppressive symbol. It's almost close to when Kanye took the Confederate flag and tried to make it his symbol. But uh, <laughs> not quite as if that didn't catch on very well. But like, you know, they took it and they said, we're going to make this our symbol of hope. This is a better, bigger power than your empire. And that's and like. What blows me away is kind of on the top of every church in the whole world is a execution device. Like it's become a symbol, you know, it's ruined for us because of precious moments. We bedazzle it on coats and stuff like that. But really it's like, imagine if a electric chair or a noose was on the top of every church. Mm. Like it's, it's, it's very confronting. And so it's just two lines crossing each other. That's so like, there's so much in those two lines that that's a, it's a kind of a brilliant design. And in the same kind of way, I'm trying to go like through very simplistic sketches or illustrations, uh, trying to bring as many ideas in as I can. And, and it's almost like, uh, well, uh, even just looking around my studio, I have a couple of my images where I've done of crosses. So in fact, what I just said about the cross was kind of my own way of trying to love the cross again, because I stopped liking the cross as a symbol because I I felt like in our culture, it didn't, it stopped meaning anything. Sure. It's because it's too, it's just everywhere. It's like, uh, it's, <laughs> I'm like, it's tattooed on celebrities bodies. It's like, like douchebags wear it on necklaces at dance clubs. Remember justice like, dragged this huge cross around the world on, on their tours for yeah. just because they thought it looked nifty. Yeah. Like, yeah. Ah. You know, it's, it's, st- it became stylish. It was like all these things. And, uh, so I feel like because it's everywhere and it's, Oh, like mother Teresa wears one, but it's also on the logo of the KKK. So it's like, I think people go, I don't even really know what this means. I now more associated it with a holes, you know, <laughs> like people who are hypocrites or, are just jerks. And so for me, I was like, well, I got to, uh, I was like, should I have the cross as part of like, should I, I wanted to love the cross. So I worked with this pastor at this church as a part of who's an old Testament scholar. And we actually made this image. I made this image where he, well, he's like, well, all of this prophecy is being accomplished on the cross. So we, we went through that. And then I like, so if I, if you kind of imagine like, uh, like a microscope, you know, and you can go different layers of depth. So it's like if the cross is so simple, it was like I almost turned it and be like, let's make it a little more complex. And so then I made images that are in the shape of a cross. Mm -hmm. So and then each image represents like an Old Testament prophecy that's happening. Mm -hmm. And then on the side and on the bottom is, is like hands and feet. And on the top was like the Christ is king. So then so it's like I made this simplistic image a little bit more complex so we could see all that's going on in that simplistic image. Then we can go back down to just the sim. So it's like the, uh, and I'm stealing this from another teacher, but like, you know, there's simplicity and then there's complexity and then there's a simplicity on the other side of complexity. Totally. And so sometimes like the simplicity on the other side of complexity is amazing, but sometimes you have to go back to the complexity to understand that where that simplicity came from. Mm. And I think that's, I'm trying to get to the simplicity on the other side of complexity, but I'm okay every now and then showing and trying to show the complexity to get, and then go back to the simplicity. That's, that, that's the kind of the tension I'm always in and like illustrating. Mm. And then, and then also like, is, does this look cool? Would I get this as a tattoo? (laughs) Like I have other things like you, cause you can make like simplicity at complexity. It doesn't mean it looks good. Like you have to have like good taste and, and go, no, that's, I should redo that again. That's not great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's that. Uh, maybe it's the fear of public uh, <laughs> critique. You know, I don't know. That's yeah. real. Yeah, it's real. Yeah. I want to make beautiful things. So, yeah. Yeah. There, there's that aspect of it, too. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, what fascinates me is that uh, all religious work is all made up. You know, there's like even the images of like 
ancient Palestine, Jesus and disciples in robes and stuff. We kind of know that historically because of artifacts and things like that. But nobody really knows what it looked like. They could have all had mohawks. You know what I'm saying? Like all of those tunics could have been bright pink. Like probably not because we know a lot about like clothes making and stuff. But it's like it's all made up. But because – it's just layers upon layers upon layers of tradition. We just have all these assumptions about what it's supposed to look like. So I'm trying to sidestep this massive juggernaut of a of like a historical Christian brand and trying to like recontextualize it with like street art or simple like make it look like nothing. And I have some rules for myself. It's like I try not to use crosses um, to describe to try to describe things. Um, and I rarely ever want to actually like make an image of Jesus Mm. like that that kind of carries on this like white Norwegian or you know like this kind of like this Jesus motif because I'm like that's not the point for me I mean I've made a couple like portraits of Jesus but they're like they're very symbolic more icon oriented like I made one I think I have a print of it over there but I made one after I went to Jerusalem because I saw all these like Christ icons and I was poor and I couldn't afford one. So when I came home, I was like, I'm just gonna make my own. <laughs> um, but I made him look like a Middle Eastern man, you know, and uh, and have all this kind of symbology in it and stuff. So um, yeah, when I first when I first saw your work, first my my first reaction was, oh yeah, this is super like fresh modern. I mean, obviously not art modern. Like this is, you know, this is fresh cutting edge design. I love it. It's like this to me in my head says design uh, rather than like some kind of category of art. Uh, And then my second thought was this reminds me of iconography. Yeah. There's a a boiled down simplicity. Yeah. Yeah. Even your just your use of of color, Mm -hmm. uh, which draws attention in these in these ways that that move me to to worship, actually. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's what they're for. Um, yeah. And if I showed you all my source material, you'd go, oh, I see what you're drawing from. It's, Mm. there's a certain, there's a guy named Eric Gill, who was like an early 19th century etcher who made a bunch of iconography or icon, iconography, iconographic. I don't know how to say, uh, images like that. He, he wasn't everybody's favorite because he made one of like Jesus and his penis is a flower. Uh, and he was like, pollinating the world so there's some things that <laughs> yes that kind of dismissed him from <laughs> the uh the uh overall accepted by like the catholic church but he had some other really interesting stuff too <laughs> so i yeah. i've been reading just through the pdf right that i got sent from the from the people uh-huh. and uh i'm desperate to get my hands on the physical copy uh you know as we head into advent and christmas I feel like your this book is the opposite end of the spectrum from all the Thomas Kincaid Christmas books I have been given from my aunts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, do you like Christmas books yourself? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> like, did you set out to write a Christmas book? No. No, I um, I set out to make something counter to what I was given. And then year after year, I just kept adding more till last year I had 20. And I was like, you know, if I put made five more, I, that's like a book. So that and that's what I did. Um, I didn't set out. I actually was at a book signing last night and was talking about this is um, is that a book like I always wanted to be an author and we have a lot of assumptions about what that means. And for me, like it's maybe needlessly dualistic, but I think sometimes we can go, Oh, a book is just somebody so smart. And this is just them downloading all their smarts, you know? Uh, and that may be true with through research and education and stuff, but also like a book is the artifact of the transformation that you want to have happen in yourself. Mm. So you go, I want to be different on the other side of this journey and I'm going to take notes along the way. And when you've come to that, you go back and you gather all your notes and then you talk about your journey and that's what a book is. Mm -hmm. And this book is that like this book is four years of going, 
I want to find, I want to see this differently. I want to find wonder in the story again. Uh, I want it to not be so wrapped up in a North American brand that involves winter. Uh, you know, so like stylistically, like even, you know, the cover and you've seen and stuff, it looks nothing like Christmas at all. Like it has no, like somebody else came out with this great Christmas book, um, and her cover's really awesome and stuff, but you're like, yeah, it kind of looks like Christmas. And that was the, that was the whole thing. It was like, what does that even mean? It kind of looks like Christmas. Christmas is just a brand. Mm. Like what we say is that it kind of looks like Christmas. That's a brand that was invented. And I, I knew for myself, I was like, I have to sidestep all of that and not make stuff that looks nothing like it to, to, to see this story, to see this happening in a different light. And so that's, um, and so that, yeah. And so it had been four years of doing that. And then this year was like, I think I have something to artifact. I think I have something to articulate and then present as my journey. Yeah. Mm, so good. Mm-hmm. And let, for the listener who's not, who is from North America and maybe is struggling to believe just how much Christmas is a brand, <laughs> let me point out that I was born and raised in New Zealand. Ah. And because that's in the Southern Hemisphere, the seasons are reversed. Yes. And so Christmas and New Year fall in the middle of summer yeah. where it's 30 degrees Celsius, yeah. uh, what, 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh-huh. And guess what we decorate our houses with? Christmas, Christmas trees, trees? <laughs> with fake icicles. Santa wears the same clothes. Uh, we wrap garlands and wreaths. We do the whole bit. Yeah. It, it makes it, no sense. It makes no sense. We sing all the same songs. And yeah. I mean, now, truth be told, like in the in the last 10 years, especially in New Zealand, I don't know about Australia, but especially in New Zealand, there's been a major cultural pushback on that. That's like, this is yeah. this is actually absurd. And yeah. so now you pick up you pick up cards in New Zealand and Santa's on a surfboard with shorts and a T-shirt. Yeah. But it's just baptizing the existing brand, whereas I feel like yeah. you've you've just been like, OK, so that's fine. I'm just going to go over here and uh and tell a completely different story about the same story that you already know because even thomas kincaid he's fabricating some reality which is cottages and snow and which is a i grew up in the northwest in the mountains and the woods it's a great image but it's just yeah it's like no this took place in a desert landscape uh most likely not during the winter time i mean you know we don't know quite when it happened i guess sometime around that census, but it wasn't December 25th, you know? So like, yeah, there's, yeah, we could re-see the story this whole different way. I, I just, I was in a locker room, uh, a locker room at this gym and this guy was talking to this other guy and he said something, he's this older guy talking to this younger guy. He's like, he's like, you know, one of the best things you can do with your life is travel. And he's like something that I was just eavesdropping on what they were talking about. But he said, one thing that'll blow your mind is when you go to a country that doesn't celebrate Christmas. <laughs> like, he's like, go to Thailand. They're Buddhists. Right. They don't celebrate Christmas. And you'll go, but doesn't everybody? Oh, but, it, but it's Christmas. Oh, it's Christmas. <laughs> I just come from a certain perspective. And he's absolutely right. I've lived overseas a few times and have traveled a lot. And yeah, that is where you're just like, oh, so I'm just, I'm just embedded in a certain understanding of everything. How could and, the, and I think it's really branching out of that is what expands your mind on these stories and these things. Because, yeah, what we really think about Christmas is kind of has given to us by like nativity scenes. This this just giant brand, you know. Totally. And so, yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, I don't really talk about that in the book much, but that was like my as a designer, as an artist, I was like, it just I want to. It's not like I want to rebrand Christmas. I'm not like trying to offer a. I'm not trying to fight the brand because I like it. I like, I like the lights. I'm putting up lights. I will, we will put up a tree. We will, I'm one of the, I'm like, I'm one of the nerds that turns on the 24 hour Christmas radio station and they're like, puts it on the speed dial on their car and listens to it. Cause I like it. See you and me both, man. <laughs> I like the brand. I just, it just, and I, and I'm, and I think there's one, I think it's the chapter called goop. Where I'm just like, keep Santa, keep presents, keep your Best Buy gift cards, keep all of that. It's like, I'm not saying throw it away. I'm just saying like, but the wonder isn't in that for mm-hmm. me anymore. 
There's yeah. no wonder in that anymore. You, you you wrote as well about this. Well, And speaking of wonder, for those who haven't seen yet, the, the subtitle of the book is Awakening to the Wonder of God with yeah. Us Then, Here, and Now. Yeah. And, and you wrote too that I was reading this morning that really hit me was, was on this thing of, of the difference between essence and mechanics. Mm-hmm. That because of all of our rituals, sometimes we, we get so fixated on the mechanics of the thing yeah. that we forget what it's all about. And I feel like yeah. in popular culture, there's no greater example than Christmas. Like, like mm. we can't, I don't know about you, but like as a father, we can't talk about Christmas without, without starting it with this whole series of caveats, right? It's like, yeah. so Christmas isn't about blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it, it, it's actually about blah, blah. You know, yeah. it's like we have to hit reset on the ritual sometimes. And I feel like that's what you've tried to do, or at least that's, yeah. that was the effect for, for me is yeah. that you were, you were helping me hit reset on a bunch of these things to see it with fresh eyes. Yeah. So I'm very that's, thankful. That's exactly what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Hooray. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, this has been a blast. I am so loving this conversation. I would love to do it many more times. I'm also loving uh, all of your tattoos uh, one of my best friends is a tattoo artist and I messaged okay. his wife shortly before this cause they're big fans of your work. And oh, she nice. said, Oh, you're talking to Scott. That's wonderful. Uh, we've lost count of the number of tattoos of his work that Mark has oh, been asked to do on people's <laughs> bodies. <laughs> oh yeah. I get shown pictures like twice a week. Some, somebody sends me a picture. It's like, and that's, uh, I, People are like, does that make you mad? I'm like, why would it make me? That's awesome. It's great. Uh, mo- eight, most of the time, it's amazing. I've seen some really bad versions of my art, and I'm like, oh, you should have, called, you should have, at, you should have like helped me guide you in that. But yeah, uh, <laughs> but no, I think it's wonderful. I think it's amazing. Well, I mean, uh, so I uh, like over 10 years ago, I worked at this church in Houston, Texas, and I was the artist in residence. And one year we translated the stations of the cross into tattoos. Mm. And the whole idea was to be like 10 stations and the stations would be the tattoo on the person. So the opening night was like 10 people would be standing at the stations. And then we made a bunch of people participated in it. In fact, like 60 from our church did it. So then we had all these pictures and stuff like that. And then like over 160 people, I think nationwide, and people still get those tattoos. But I remember we were doing like a photo shoot with everybody and we were all just kind of waiting. And I, I was, I was this one girl, Sharice, I was like, oh, you know, thanks for being willing to do this. And she was like, no, thank you. You, you gave an image to my experience in the world that I wanted to talk about. And I was on this one interview where this guy was like, do you think that like maybe tattoos are like a newer version of like baptism? And I, I was like, I think they are. I think in the essence that baptism is like, I want to make a public statement about this change. I think a tattoo is kind of the same thing. Like a tattoo is like, this is my story. Mm. This is what I believe in. This is what I hope for. This is what happened to me. And then sometimes it's like, and here's somebody with crazy eyeballs, you know, or like Frankenstein, you know, but it's usually, it's usually a, some kind of visual representation of the person's experience in the world. And so I know that many people of faith are like, I've had this encounter with the living God. I want to express that. And I just happen to make stuff that looks really good translated onto skin. And yeah. so that's just where I think that's all come from. So I, I'm very honored that my artwork is on people. So um, good. yeah, that's, but that's fun to hear. I've never heard it from the, from the artist. I hear from people. Yeah. I hear, I never heard it from, I mean, I, I like my Molly, who's done a lot of my tattoos. She's like, Oh, I'll get somebody every now and then it'll be like, she's like, I know Scott <laughs> like, <laughs> and they want to do it. But that's funny to hear them say like, we've lost count of how many times. <laughs> oh my gosh. Really Scott, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you to pray for us. And I, and obviously you can pray wherever you kind of feel to, to be led, but what's sticking in my spirit as we're, as I'm just thinking back on even what we've talked about for the last hour, you, you made this statement earlier about the kind of vulnerability, the uncomfortableness, and that what if that is our touch point with God? You, you, I made a note too, because you'd written in the book about unease, that there was this time in Mary's life where God's presence was the unease of morning sickness. Yeah. 
I mentioned to this interview I did with Pete Grieg a couple of weeks ago. He was saying, you know, Jesus promises that he'll never leave us. So when God is silent, that's just God's mm. presence manifesting in a different way. Yeah. And so I wonder uh, just, yeah, if, if you would pray for us in that realm of when we are just not familiar with God's presence as anything other than, you know, Problem solving, yeah. immediate yeah. problem solving, because uh, yeah. I feel like like you're inviting us to encounter God, like in 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 a hope that is robust enough for 2020s problems. Yeah. Hmm. No pressure. No. <laughs> no, I have it. So let's. Um, for those of you who are listening, um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find your heartbeat like just putting your hand like on your chest or that two fingers in the artery on your neck or on your wrist and uh, i just want you to find your heartbeat for a second so there's this uh when we feel our heartbeat we feel that there is this um, this organ inside of us that keeps us alive without us being in charge of it. Um, we could even say like, who, who gave me this? I never, I never, I didn't go pick this out. I didn't choose this heart. It was given to me as a gift. It's not, it's nothing I chose. It was, it's just, it was just, it's come with me. And it works without me knowing and it keeps me alive. And that is that is a bit of a grace. There's nothing I need to do to keep it going. It just goes. And my life is sustained by something that I'm not in charge of, by this grace, this grace. So when Jesus says like, or when Paul says about, there's nothing that can separate us from God's love, we, we, can, we can feel this beat as a symbol of that love, of that sustaining love, that sustaining grace that is keeping aspects of our life, not just our health and our existence and our, our, you know, like life, but also our calling and our vocation, our, our loves, our desires, our community. Like there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a hidden providence also beating and working in ways that we don't always witness. And even if we like move from our heart and we feel our breath, we can control our breathing, but it's still something that works, uh, that we don't, aren't really in charge of. So there's another grace there. And then we could even take it to like how the earth circles the sun, um, which allows us for light and day and sustains life. And so that's something that we're not in charge of that also keeps us alive. So there's so many things that are keeping us alive that we're not in charge of. And maybe, and could we let those, when we lose sight or we don't feel it or we don't understand, could we use those as just starting places, that starting place to understand that God loves us and is with us and we can never be separated from that. Amen. Scott Erickson, ladies and gentlemen, how did you like that prayer exercise? Man, we recorded this, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and I've been coming back to that thing with the heartbeat. I'm thinking, man, that's huge. Especially, I think, if you're working with kids and trying to help them connect with their bodies, their emotions, and with God. That's a brilliant exercise. Thank you, Scott. I'm going to I'm going to borrow it. <laughs> All right, my friends. Thank you so much for listening. Glad you would be here. Uh, share the show if you enjoyed it. Tell a friend. Make sure you're following me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure you're following Scott Erickson. You'll find him at Scott the Painter. And go order a copy of his book, Honest Advent. It's out now. You can get it just in time for Christmas. And it's linked in the show notes. Also, just in time for Christmas, grab yourself a copy of my devotional, You Are Enough, Learning to Love Yourself the Way God Loves You. Not too late to place orders now that will arrive in time for Christmas. You can get signed copies directly from me at jonathanpuddle.com store. 
and I get those sent out ASAP. I just got some cheaper shipping rates too if you're buying single copies. So hopefully that's helpful for some of you. You can also grab the audiobook from me. It's going, I mean, it may be out on Audible by the time you hear this, but right now it is only available on my website, but you can grab the audiobook, the ebook, the paperback if you'd like. All right, friends, thank you so much for being with me. God bless you all. Have a great week.